Hello and welcome to the Mission Recovery Podcast. My name is Maruf Ahmed and I'm the co-founder of Quit Genius, the world's leading digital clinic for substance addictions. I'm going to be speaking to inspiring individuals about their journey to addiction recovery. Recovery should be celebrated and the goal of Mission Recovery is to break down the stigma surrounding addictions and to empower others to live addiction-free lives. This is Mission Recovery. Welcome to episode four of the Mission Recovery podcast. In today's episode, I'm honored to be joined by the amazingly talented Eddie McClintock. Eddie is a famous actor who's best known for his lead role in the hit show Warehouse 13. He's been an actor for 25 years and has starred in Friends, Sex in the City, and many other well-known shows. He has a heartwarming story on addiction and his journey to being 20 years sober. Eddie, thank you so much for being here. Hey, Maruf. How are you today, man? Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. No worries at all. I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for asking. Uh, how are you? Yeah, man. You know, I'm awake. I'm above ground. You know, I, uh, I'm still married. My kids are both, uh, you know, healthy and well, so I've got no complaints, man. Absolutely. In this day and age, that's a great achievement. So Eddie, I have to admit, I'm fangirling a little because I loved Warehouse 13. It was a great oh, show. Yeah. Oh, thanks, man. Thank no, you. I miss it. I miss it. And So does my accountant. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, yeah. It was obviously a big hit, big show, and it probably paid very well as a result as well. But for the listeners, Eddie, I think it'd be really helpful if you could tell us a little bit about your career as an actor. Okay. Um, when I was in high school, um, one of my football coaches took me out in the hall one day and he said, you know, Eddie, college isn't for everyone. Uh, have you ever thought about maybe getting a job working for the parks, uh, you know, parks and recreation <laughs> here in, in North Canton, Ohio? And uh, I think it's the first time I'd ever heard anyone encourage someone not to get a higher education but in hindsight I don't blame him you know I, uh, I was a pretty wild kid you know um, but I, I went to college anyway I went down to Wright State I got my uh, degree uh, it, I crammed four years into six uh, uh, got my degree in business communications wrestled for for three years um, then my uncle uh, offered me a job selling insurance in Los Angeles and I always wanted to I always wanted to come to LA you know the big big city and uh, so I accepted his offer uh, I moved to Los Angeles to sell corporate insurance and uh, off I went to LA. Um, uh, he fired me after seven months um, because uh, again, I, I, uh, I was still drinking and uh, using and um, you know, uh, I would, uh, on, the, on the weekends, I'd be driving home from work, taking my, my tie off and putting my Doc Martens on. And uh, I was ready for uh, whatever party atmosphere awaited me on the weekend and uh you know he he actually did the obviously the right thing for him and the right thing for me at that time um of course that wasn't really my that really wasn't my wake-up call but i um 
I kind of floated around and uh, went into production. I was a production assistant. Uh, you know, I was excited the day I got my first walkie-talkie. I was like, "Whoa, nice, I, nice!" I made it, man. I'm a Hollywood guy. <laughs> um, so uh, I had my walkie-talkie. I was a production assistant, and uh, I was I was not good at that either. You know, I uh, I I. Uh, wrecked a couple of production vehicles and you know i kind of always i, I saw myself as kind of the uh, the three-legged dog that runs around the neighborhood that everybody you know is like oh there's the three-legged dog and then he's really cute until somehow he gets past you runs into your house and poops on your mom's favorite rug you know <laughs> like oh, okay we've had enough you know out yeah. out um uh, so, uh, a friend of mine, uh, was taking acting class and she said, um, you know, you want to take an acting class with me? And I, I, I had always kind of, I mean, I love film. I love TV growing up. Um, I always kind of, I grew up entertaining my mom. My mom was kind of clinically depressed my whole life. So I spent a good deal of my time trying to get my mom to laugh, you know? And uh, so I was like, yeah, let, let, let's try acting. I, I went in um, uh, to class and um, I liked it. I liked it. I, I wasn't sure if I was, you know, ready to commit to anything because I was still partying, still drinking, still using. Um, and then one day I was, I had been up, for I don't know 48 hours or whatever and I was supposed to do work with my acting partner and hmm. uh, I knew that it wasn't going to happen because I was still up uh, and so I called him from a payphone at 7-Eleven on uh, Santa Monica Boulevard and I was like oh hey man you know ah, just not feeling so good today man um and he said, okay, he goes, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to get a different scene partner. I just want you to know, you know, no, no problem, but I can just, you're not, you're not serious about this. And I'm, I'm serious about this and I want to do this. I realized, I, I realized that, um, if I was going to have any chance to be an actor or be a success at all in life, um, I was going to have to change my, um, I was going to have to change my life in a big way. Eddie, how bad did it get? I mean, you know, everybody's bottom is different, right? Um, I mean, I did some things that I'm not proud of at all. Uh, for instance, my father, when I was young, um, obviously this is a big one for me. Um, my dad gave me his high school class ring it was a beautiful class ring from 1958. My dad and I both graduated from the same high school. Um, I graduated in 85. He graduated in 58. Um, you know, I love my dad. My dad, uh, because of my mom's illness, my dad basically took care of me. Um, and, uh, but I took my dad's class ring down to the dope man and uh, gave my dad uh, my dad's ring to the, some random guy for like, I don't know, 30 bucks worth of crack. Wow. Uh, so that, that was a big one. 
Um, yeah. That that was a low point. Um, uh, <laughs> you mentioned obviously your mum was clinically depressed. How did that all play into you know the fact that you were using and you know? I mean, I guess subconscious. You know, I was never really. Uh, you know, I never. I guess in retrospect, you know, um, when my mom kind of really went off the deep end uh because i was kind of her child um you know like my wife and i have two kids two boys one looks exactly like her and one looks exactly like me so the one that looks like me we were kind of like oh that's my child and then the little <laughs> you know right so i i i have a sister she kind of looks like my dad and i grew up and everybody was always like oh you look just like your mom so I guess in the back of my mind, I was always waiting for the other shoe to drop for me in regards to my mental health. You know, I was always, I was always like, when, when is that going to happen to me? So, I mean, you know, I don't know how really cognizant I was of it at the time, but in, in, like I said, looking back, I guess it probably impacted me more than I was, able to realize at the time yeah absolutely and you mentioned that obviously you had a few warning signs and then you had this 48 hour bender really and then your acting partner at the time said you know this isn't right you realized that there was some change so i guess what happened after that okay uh i i started uh telling people um you know like I told my sister, I said, you know, this is what I've been doing. And she was concerned. And I told my father and he was concerned. And, and uh, they ended up taking me to the Cleveland Clinic um, when, when I was back in Ohio for at Christmas. And the Cleveland Clinic said they wanted to keep me. And I, I didn't want to, I wasn't ready for that. And so... I, um, I went back to LA and, you know, I think I was probably good for a week or something. And then I, you know, like it was part of that. It became, look, I look how good, you know, it's like, if you're sad, that's a great excuse to party. You know, if you're happy, great excuse to party. I mean, any, any, <laughs> any, uh, any way along the emotional scale was always just a good reason to party inevitably. And it's interesting, you know, you call it a party, but in the end, it was never really a party. It was, it was kind of an anti-party. Um, so I, I, um, I started going to AA and, it, you know, interestingly, it was, uh, I, I started getting a lot of attention in AA meetings and, and I was, you know, I wanted attention, man. You know, so it, was, it was good for me. Um, but I I I, start, I I stayed sober for a while. I I um, was going to meetings, staying sober, and because of my sobriety, you know, I, a, a lot of my friends fell off. I, I, a lot of the people that my my uh, lower companions, as we say, um, and even you know some of my higher companions, they fell off because mm -hmm. I was no longer doing the things that we normally did together. So I stayed in, I stayed in acting class. Like I would go to acting class every night pretty much because I didn't have anything else to do. 
I think I became known in class as somebody who really did good work, you know, for the first time in my life since, um, since my sports days, you know, like I always, um, I always achieved in, in sports. And then after sports, I was like, Oh, what, who am I? What am I? What do I do? And then all of a sudden I'm finding success uh, with this. So, um, and then from there, uh, someone from class uh, mentioned me to their manager and then I got a manager and then my manager got me an agent and, um, before long, it, things started happening for me with my acting. And um, I had a few slips um, along the way. Uh, I ended up, uh, I got a 5150 at Cedars. And then at that time, I ended up with Jan Beret, which I don't know if they were related, but uh, so that was kind of a weird scare. But then, um, was January uh, January first, uh, twenty years ago. I had my last drink and did my last drug, and um, you know I've 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 been lucky enough to uh, have a family and and uh, have a career and and at least be present for all the um, successes and all the failures, you know. That's an incredible achievement. The two decade mark is, is probably feels very, very good. And, and like you said, contributed to a lot of the successes that you had beyond that. And actually, just before we touch into more of the recovery side of things, soon after this, you obviously got your big breakthrough Warehouse 13, which was a massive hit show. So talk to me about how that came about. And then secondly, how that changed your life from, you know, having an agent to being famous. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I had done, as you said earlier, like I, I did friends and, uh, you know, just shoot me and spin city. I was doing a lot of sitcoms. I did, uh, I did, uh, my first big sitcom break was, uh, on a show called Ned and Stacy with Thomas Hayden church and, um, Deborah Messing who went on to do will and grace. Um, I, I, I went on as a guest spot and they, at the show, they liked me so much. They were like, let's bring him back. They brought me back for four more episodes. And um, I ended up being um, Deborah Messing's kind of half wit boyfriend. Um, and that, that kind of really was the thing that my, my manager and my agent used to like, I, st and I started getting hit, 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 you know, hitting, hitting. And, um, um, and then one day I, I, uh, I told my manager, I was like, look, um, I don't, I'm kind of tired of playing the dumb Joey character. You know, there's already a, a Joey and he's making a million dollars an episode. And, um, you know, maybe we should try something else. I wanted to, I wanted to do some more serious work, you know, something that was a little more serious so we quit going out for the, the Joey parts. And um, I had a, I did the show Bones, someone who was capable, someone who was functioning, um, you know, and, um, and then he was kind of, uh, I always say he was kind of like the Pete Latimer starter kit, Sully, when I did Sully on Bones, because he wasn't quite as, 
he wasn't quite as silly as, as Pete Latimer. Um, he was a little more contained because it was a different type of show, obviously. Mm. Um, and, uh, but the, the, the time between Sully and, and Pete warehouse 13 was like a, two years. So for two years, I kind of just like was, I guess it took the business a while to accept that I was a competent, could play a competent character as opposed to just the, you know, the, the, the idiot. And it's interesting as well, because so Pete Latimer is the, for the listeners, is the agent of the US Secret Services, who's the main character in, in Warehouse 13. But it's also interesting that he was a recovering alcoholic and he was also sober in the show as well. So at the time of filming, you were obviously recovering and you were sober, like you mentioned. So was this just a coincidence or how did that all come about? No, um, my exec producer, who, uh, who was a friend of mine for many, many years, uh, who was also sober, um, you know, he and I were sitting talking and he was like, what do you think about, you know, making Pete sober? And I was just like, yeah, great, let's do it. You know, and it, it kind of, um, it brought even more dimension to Pete and it gave him, it gave him um, kind of, in my mind, an excuse for these out, these, um, his wacky, you know, like his sense of humor, it deepened him. So he wasn't just like this, you know, because a lot of, a lot of fans were kind of at first, they were like, you know, this guy is a little too wacky to be a secret service agent. But then when you find out that he's sober, that we had a pretty pivotal uh, episode where, you know, Pete talks about, you know, he got into this car accident and you see, you see how affected he really is by this. Hmm. And um, you know, like the, the, some of the, some of the, some of the funniest people I know in life are also kind of the most serious people I know. And once you find out that these funny people actually have, you know, problems, you kind of go, Oh, okay. I get it. You know, it, 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 you, you get why they have this outlet for it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a protection. It's, it's, it's like armor. It protect, you know, the sense of humor. And in my case in life, you know, my, my sense of humor has always been kind of my, my protection and my armor. And, and, uh, and so to have Pete Latimer be able to, to operate the same way in life, um, just made it that much easier to play. You know, I mean, I really didn't have to do a whole lot of acting when I showed up to work every day. I just had to be myself, you know? Yeah, absolutely. That's really interesting, actually. And uh, it's interesting that you're talking about the protection and the armor. And also interesting how in your journey, you talked about, and this was your pre, I guess, success days and early acting days, you kept going back to alcohol, so or alcohol and drugs and using drugs. So what were really the benefits that you were getting from drinking from using that, that meant you kept going back to substances? Uh, you know, I, I think looking back i always wanted attention but when i got attention it freaked me out and so i was socially uncomfortable 
So in over to in in order to overcome my social anxiety, I used um, alcohol and drugs. I used alcohol and drugs to fit in, to get in, um, and, and to be a part of a group. And then once I got in, I used it to kind of to kind of climb the ladder, the hierarchy of the, that group. So. Like not only was I the guy, not only did I drink and party with the guys, but like I was the guy that everybody was like, oh man, did, were you with Eddie last night? You should have seen him. He was, he was, you know, hilarious, you know, he was hilarious or he did something crazy. The whole place was laughing or the whole place was cringing or whatever it was. I used it for clout. You know, I mm. used it. Um, it became my traveling companion you know my my bro you know um it became uh i used it as a again i used it for protection i used it as a weapon and so i i i couldn't imagine um living without it hmm. you know like i i i didn't want to deal with my anxiety and the oncoming depression that uh, that was, you know, beginning to, to show itself in my life. That's really interesting, Eddie, because you talk about how initially you were using it to be virtually the life and soul of the party, right? Eddie's this, Eddie's funny. I love seeing Eddie last night. And it gave you that confidence that you needed at the time. But then when did that almost switch to I'm now dependent on alcohol? When was that turning point or how did it really progress into that? Yeah, it certainly did. Um, it went from, like you said, kind of the life of the party to it became a, a coping mechanism that I used because, well, after college, basically, mm. because because then I moved to L.A. and where my social circle was very condensed in college. Um, when I moved to L.A., it it was very, um, you know, spread out, I guess, like for, for lack of a better word. So, and I, and I met up with some guys who, um, who were a lot like me drinking and using funny, very funny guys. Um, but dark, instead of being like at the bar being like, Hey, you know, we would sit in the corner in the dark booth and together and it certainly was a shift you know um and we would sit in a small group and drink together and and you know like tell dark stories you know we i i i i became a big fan of like charles bukowski i kind of rom i i began to romanticize the uh the pointlessness of life you know like i it, it kind of an existential um you know i won i was getting deep you know in my life and i was reading kerouac and and uh so there definitely was a shift and and um and i kind of embraced that kind of the dark hood you know the the brooding um the brooding alcoholic drug addict um, mystery. I wanted to be, you know, I wanted to be more standoffish and mysterious. You know, I mean, I'd always been a chameleon. Mm. Um, 
you know, a social, uh, a B, I, I would use drugs and alcohol and my, you know, what God gave me my, my, um, a certain level of charisma to manipulate situations, uh, so that I could insinuate myself into various groups. And then once I was in there to feel comfortable in there, um, yeah. using alcohol and drugs. And you talk about this dark period, Eddie, how are you feeling within yourself at the time? You know, I felt like I had no future. I, I can remember I, uh, you know, a lot of people, um, they would be, you know, like, I want to be an astronaut or I want to be a dentist. Or, and I always tried to like, you know, do that. Like, what am I going to be? Who am I? And I did, I, it was just dark. And I, I was just, um, I guess, it was, I guess, again, it was a way for me to not deal with that reality that I saw myself as having no future. Mm. Um, and so I embraced that, like almost kind of a nihilistic, uh, you know, existence where nothing really matters. Yeah, absolutely. And you talked about how from then and beyond that, obviously telling your parents, telling your family around you really, really helped with that. And then you went into the Cleveland Clinic, you went into AA. So do you mind just talking about how, first of all, what support you got and how that really helped you along your recovery journey? So I, I ended up, you know, like I would, I would drink and we would like, you know, we would sit in the bar and we would drink in the darkness until we got to alcoholically a place where the the alarms started going off for me and then i'd be and then we'd be like now it's time to go get crack hmm. and so uh i was uh, my sister was coming out to visit me in la and i was supposed to pick her up at the airport and i was at a crack house these women May and Terry, they used to shut down the crack house when I'd show up because I would bring money and I would buy for them and for me and the three of us would sit in their house. They would like, you know, kick people out, and wouldn't let people in. And I actually, you know, we kind of in in a dark way became friends, I guess. Um, and one day we were sitting around the table. It was on a uh, Super Bowl Sunday. I can remember looking over and, and the Super Bowl was on. And, um, and, they, and one of them said to me, Eddie, we, we want to talk to you. And I said, yeah. And they said, we think you're smoking too much. And um, this was the people who owned and ran the crack house that I was going to. And... Uh, I was just like, whoa. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I, it still, you know, gives me chills because, mm -hmm. I mean, talk about a God shot, you know, the, the people that were smoking crack with me in their crack house were worried about me. Um, so the day I was supposed to pick up my sister uh, from the airport, I was over there at their house and I had been up now probably for, you know, a, a couple days or whatever. 
And I remember, you know, looking at my watch, I'm like, okay, I have six hours before I have to go pick up my sister. And then I was like, okay, I have four hours and three hours and two hours. Okay. In an hour. Okay. I should be there. Okay. I'm not there. I'm not at LAX picking up my sister. And then I, I mean, this was back, I don't know, cell phones, I guess were out, but I somehow I called the airport and I told them, you know, oh, my, I'm supposed to pick up my sister. Could, you know, can you tell her that she needs to take a cab? I gave my address. And, and then once I was off the hook for that, I was like, oh, it's going to take her an hour or two hours to get to my house from LAX. So now I have two hours. I mean, you know, just like sickness, dude, sickness. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I stayed and smoked and then finally, I don't know, I must've run out of money. Mm. Um, and I decided to go to my house to where my sister was. And I went in and, and I, and my sister was like, what, what happened? Where, where are you? And I tried to lie to her. And then, you know, there, there was always a small part of me in the back of my mind that said a voice that said, you're better than this. You know, there's more, there's more for you than this. And that voice helped me to get honest with my sister and say, this is what I'm doing. Yeah. My sister said to me, she goes, if you ever do it again, promise me you'll go to rehab. And I said, okay, I promise. And, um, you know, I, I, I didn't do it for a while. And then I did again. And I said, you know, I, I, I smoked again. And um, so my, my mom sent me to rehab. I went to rehab and it was good. I stayed sober for a while, but then relapsed again. Eddie, was there anything else that helped your recovery after being honest with your sister and a couple of times in rehab? You know, I guess I, I, found the 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 magic for me was this little place called the log cabin in west hollywood california um i went to this meeting at 7 30 in the morning um and i mean you know i kind of thought my life was over i was like okay i'm gonna get sober the party's over my my fun life which it hadn't been fun for a long time by that time but I was still convinced somehow because, you know, alcoholic brain, like, you know, I have an alcoholic brain. Um, but man, I walked into that room and everybody was laughing and everybody was happy to see one another and everybody welcomed me in there and they were all, you know, hanging out. And I was like, wow, this is, I had no idea, you know? And then, I mean, I've met the best, the people in my life to this day, um, the people that I love, some of the most loved people in my life are from that 7.30 meeting. I mean, I, I went every day, every morning at 7.30 a.m. Um, to this meeting. I met my wife at that meeting. Wow. Um, and... Um, we've been, we've been together now for 20, 20 years. I was just getting sober and she had a year and, um, and, um, you know, like I do these zoom meetings now. I mean, the best part of this whole COVID thing 
mm. has been these Zoom meetings um, uh, because I'm going to meetings with guys who I got sober with at the log cabin who I hadn't seen in 15 years. And, um, and they're all over the country, you know, some are up in Canada, but wow. we, sit, we get together every Saturday night at six o'clock and, uh, and, uh, you know, talk, talk, the talk, the talk and try and walk the walk, you know? Mm. Yeah. And, uh, it's been, it's been, uh, it's been pretty incredible. Um, yeah. What an incredible journey and story there, Eddie. Really appreciate you sharing that with us. And I think that's really interesting as well. Like all the things, first of all, from the realization point, which was the really hard point to, you know, open up to your sister and then going to, you know, rehab and then the log cabin. And, you know, the principles of just being able to relate to other people who are going through exactly the same situation as yourself and coming through the other side in case of your wife, one year sober can be so powerful and so inspirational. And in some cases more powerful than the support that you can get from a medical professional or a doctor or a counselor. So really, really well done and huge congratulations because now you're two decades sober. And Eddie, one thing I wanted to touch on as well is that you're a loving father now and a what a loving husband and a great father to two amazing children so how has sobriety helped with that you know interestingly um (laughs) our one son we've always as he was growing up um my wife and i would joke to one another like well saving a seat for this one that's kind of like an aa inside joke like yeah we'll save you a seat whenever we meet someone who <laughs> probably uh, is, uh, you know, destined for an AA meeting. Um, and he just growing up, he always kind of, you know, we were like eh, old alcoholic brain over here, just t- with his obsessive, um, you know, he's very obsessive about things. And, um, and uh, he's now 15 and um, we're going through it. You know, it's, uh, it's no long, it was, uh, it was funny then. Um, again, you know, you use your sense of humor and your comedy, regardless of how dark it is to shield you from, you know, it's a little buffer from reality a little bit, but it's not, it's not, you know, it's not as funny anymore now because we're kind of in the midst of it. Um, he's struggling. The COVID has been uh, really hard for him. Mm. Uh, he's got ADHD and, and uh, you know, hasn't been to school in over a year. Um, he is struggling with uh, depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, um, and has started uh, smoking marijuana. And Lynn and I uh, are very, uh, you know, we're. Kind of, I mean, certainly, I'm very conflicted on how we are operating um, with him. Hmm. Um. So, uh, but it certainly is helping to have two sober people. My my wife works in. She works as a sober companion. Wow. Um, and so, uh, 
you know, we have 40, 41 years of sobriety that we are using to help my son navigate his way through um, what we consider early stages of a possible drug and alcohol dependency. Hmm. And, uh, yeah, I'm so sorry to hear that, Eddie. And, you know, they couldn't be in any better hands than yourself and your wife. You know, I hope and pray that he has a very successful recovery journey, just like yourself, and, you know, doesn't fall into addiction any further than he is now. So another thing I'd love to delve into, Eddie, is the impact sobriety has had on your life as a whole. You've been 20 years sober now. What impact has this had on you? Well, uh, as I was telling you before we jumped on the video, um, because of Warehouse 13 and because of my career, um, I do conventions around the world um, where I speak to large groups of people. Um, and I always pretty, pretty much start my talks off with the fact that I'm 20 years sober or eight, you know, when I was, that I'm sober and that if, if it wasn't for my sobriety, there would be no Eddie McClintock. You know, I mean, I was headed for, you know, jail, institu you know, institution or death, right? I mean, those, those were kind of my three, my three paths that I was headed on. And um, if I hadn't gotten sobriety, if I hadn't gotten sober, I was surely destined to end up in, in one of those places, if not all. I mean, I've ticked off two of the three boxes. So there was really only one other, you know, one other that I that I hadn't achieved. So, um, and, and because of, because, and we talked earlier um, about the, uh, the negative stigma of, of uh, drug and alcohol abuse. Um, you know, I grew up, as I said, wrestling and playing football. I grew up in that, you know, win mentality, um, never give up. Um, you know, you know, your mind is, is stronger, you know, you know, don't be weak. And um, so I think that mindset kept me from uh, my, that mindset and my ego kept me from being honest mm -hmm. because I didn't want to admit defeat, you know, um, and so it took me a while and I, I, I consider myself very lucky that I was honest enough with myself to say, look, I'm, I give, you know, I give, I'm, I'm not strong enough to do this on my own. Um, and, uh, and, and I was, I was strong enough, ironically, to ask for help. You know, I mean, I've always, um, when I'm talking to people that are struggling, especially some of my old wrestling buddies who are now struggling, and I'm just like, but I'm like, buddy, it takes a stronger man, in my opinion, to admit that they need help than to try and, you know, bullhead it through together on your own, you know, or, or, or to say, I'm bigger than alcohol. I'm bigger than drugs. I can do this. I can either do it on my own or I can continue to use drugs and alcohol because drugs and alcohol don't control me. You know, and for somebody with that kind of 
with that kind of attitude, it keeps a lot of people from, from getting honest and from getting humble and from getting help and getting uh, healthy. So, you know, I mean, my life isn't perfect uh, by any stretch of the imagination. You know, this business that I'm in is, is, you know, for a long time, it was just upward, 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 upward. You know, I kept the next thing was always up, up, up. And, the, you know, as I've gotten older, you know, I've, I've moved out of the, the uh, 18 to 35 demographic that advertisers are looking for. And I've moved into, you know, I'm an older guy now and the, the opportunities have, have lessened. And that's been a big, that's been a big, you know, hit to my, to my ego, which I've always tried to keep in check. I've always mm -hmm. tried to have not, but I do, I have an ego and, and uh, man, I'll tell you, if I hadn't been sober through some of these times, you know, again, I, alcohol, uh, institutions, jail or death, that's, that's where I'm headed if I mm. decide to go back to use alcohol and drugs. So Eddie, that concept on being a stronger man and the stronger man actually going out to seek support. I just couldn't agree any more with that statement because it's so, so true. The easier thing to do is almost sweep it under the carpet and not go out and seek support and actually facing up to it. That realization is really, really important. And the other interesting thing that you touched on, which I think is really interesting, is that stigma associated with substance addictions. And actually, we talked about this just before we started recording around you being from the Midwest and there's big stigma associated with substance addictions, especially from where you're from. So why are you so vocal about your addictions and, you know, so public about your recovery journey? Well, uh, one, uh, I, I need it for myself. The more honest I can be to the world, uh, the more honest I can be with myself. I have a friend who was on the uh, United States uh, Olympic wrestling team. He's one of the baddest dudes I know. I mean, he- You wouldn't is, want to get in a fight with him. No, <laughs> uh, no. Um, physically, mentally, insanely tough, but he's had, he's, struggles with alcohol and drugs you know he's done damage to his life and to his relationships and it's hard for me because I watch him he's just not able to go I surrender I you know it's that old stigma of be a man you know you can do it you know, and, and, and that, that old um, societal trope, uh, I think it keeps a lot of good men and a lot of good, even women, you know, from being honest and, and surrendering, you know, like surrendering that that's like the first step is, you know, admit and surrender that yeah. I have a problem and I need help. And until you're willing to do that, nothing, you know, it's like, it's why we see so many of these people, um, you know, a lot of the people my wife works with, 
you know, it's, it's difficult because she, because, you know, the, the percentage of people that actually get sober and stay sober is very low, Mm. you know, and, and, um, because people just aren't willing to get honest. So the more I talk about it publicly, the more I can help destigmatize, um, you know, uh, alcoholism, drug addiction, um, and mental unwellness, you know, depression, anxiety. Um, it's not something that we need to hide from. It's not something that we need to be ashamed of. It's like, it's like being mad at someone for having cancer, you know, or, Mm. you know, uh, you know, for being, it's like being mad at someone for being sick. Yeah. So, you know, and, and, um, you know, I've talked to people and said that same thing, you know, it's, it's like being mad at someone that had cancer that has cancer. And, and I've seen a lot of the lights come on and people go, Oh, I guess I'd never thought of it that way. You know, um, you know, when I, and I go back to my mom, I use my mom as the example. Um, my sister and I have a, a different relationship with my mom. My sister's not a drug addict or alcoholic. Um, and she's just like, she gets mad at my mom for her manipulation. And I was like, and I just say to her, I was like, you know, she's not well. Mm. And she, that's part of her sickness. Yeah. Now, you, can, you can, you can choose to say fine, but I'm not going to be a part of her manipulation. Um, but, but to be, to be mad at her about it, I think is just, and it's hard. It's hard, you know. It's yeah. hard not to be like, okay, I'm not going to. But I, I, I keep it in perspective. You know, it's, it's all, it's all uh, how you look at it. You know, and and it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this reframing that you're talking about is really, really important because there's too many people out there that think addiction is a choice or something that someone has chosen to do. When actually, you're completely right. It's a chronic condition. It's a chronic condition like any other chronic condition out there, like diabetes. So it should be framed in the same way that diabetes is. This person has diabetes. They're going to see a doctor for it. And, and you know, there's no real stigma associated with it. So we need to. And I think you're completely right. You coming out as a very successful actor and speaking out about this really helps almost normalize this to the people out there that are suffering the most successful people out there, some of the strongest men out there, like you said, with your wrestling friends suffer from addiction and it is normal. And, you know, we can help hopefully break down this stigma by speaking about it, by having this platform to speak about it and by having folks like yourself, inspiring individuals that have gone through it, come through the other side and hopefully will help, you know, inspire some of the others out there. So I really thank you for that, Eddie. I had a couple more questions and one was, What's your biggest achievement in your life, Eddie? (laughs) Uh, My sobriety. My sobriety. I mean, uh, I have done absolutely nothing else in my life has been done perfectly. The one thing in my life that I know that I've done perfectly is that I have not drank or used in 20 years two months and three days. Wow. 
Now, now, you know, my program isn't perfect. Like I, I, I should do more within my sobriety to maintain my sobriety, to maintain like a spiritual wellness. Cause you know, once you take away, you know, like once my best friend was taken away, like, you know, what am I going to use to fill that hole? Right. Right. You know, like there was, there was a hole. I mean, you know, obviously a metaphorical hole, but what do I use now to, to fill that up? And I needed to fill it up uh, with, because, you know, (laughs) there are things, you know, in my mind that say, you know, Eddie, you're a piece of shit. You're not a good person. You're unintelligent you know, and this is all, that's all my alcoholic brain. And so in order to get away from those voices, right, I, I filled that space with drugs and alcohol. Um, and so, you know, like I, there is a spiritual component to um, staying sober. Um, and uh, for a lot of time, a lot of the 20 years, I've used my wife as my spiritual component because she's very, thank God, you know, she's very, she thinks that way. And mm. I'm, you know, like I'm a hillbilly from Ohio and I'm like, oh man, I, I don't, you know, she wants to sage the house and do all, you know, she's got some crystals and she, you know, all that. I'm like, man, I don't, I don't buy that. Right. Yeah. Um, so I've lived, I've lived a, a, a good part of my sobriety um, without that component. And um, as of about, you know, six months ago, when this other, this other thing with my boy has kind of crept in, I, it made me realize, like, I needed, if, if I was going to be a proper example, uh, and if I was going to be, uh, if I was going to have enough uh, armor to help combat and be the kind of person I needed to be to help someone else, I needed to, to fix that part of myself. So, um, you know, like I was talking to a buddy of mine who, and, and I was like, look, man, I don't pray. I don't, I'm not into that. That's just not my thing. I don't know if I believe in God. I don't know what I believe in regards to God. Hmm. And, and he was like, who cares? What can it hurt? Is, is, the way you're doing it right now, is that working for you? And I'm like, well, no. And he goes, so, so try. So with, within the past six months, I've really been trying to make contact with a power greater than myself. It's, you know, I'm a work in progress in that area, in all areas, but really in that area that I'm trying to focus on because you know, a lot of times I'll be in the midst of it and I'm just like in my head, I'm like, is this just performative? What am I doing? You know, who am I doing this for? You know, I'm just, you know, um, but, but I, I see other men and other women who, who say, this is the way we did it. And if you want to, if you want what we have, we recommend, you know, no one tells you that you have to do it, but they're just like, you know, it's like uh, the, the Dalai Lama, you know, if you want to reach Dalai Lama levels of enlightenment, who better to ask 
for uh, you know guidance than the Dalai Lama. So you you go to someone who you admire, someone who you respect, someone who has the lights are on in their eyes, and um, and you ask them how they did it, and they they've said to me, you know, get down, make us make a spiritual contact with whatever your your higher power, whatever that is. Mm. And again, it's like, you know, it's like, you know, woo woo and, and all that stuff. And, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm willing again, I've surrendered and I'm once again, willing to open myself up to, to being um, teachable. That's incredible, Eddie, honestly, you've achieved so much in your career and that biggest achievement. And like you said, being 20 years sober is a massive achievement it's a crazy achievement and we touched on this before but it is really difficult to overcome right you need the right support and that support like you've just described is different for different people some people it's aa some people it's face-to-face support some people it's that you know spiritual companion that takes them all the way through and you know AA has this buddy system and some people it's that almost digital component and you know that's what we're really trying to do here at quick genius give access to those people who want support at the comfort of their own home so really appreciate you sharing that eddie and that journey is personal to every single person and every two journeys are are different right so really appreciate you sharing that eddie Um, and just finally eddie what advice do you have to the people out there that are suffering from substance addiction and uh get honest uh get humble be willing to ask for help and then start counting days you know, I, I had someone on Twitter the other day, they, someone randomly on Twitter asked the same, they said, you know, I'm struggling, what can I do? And I, and I said, you know, those, those things, I said, get honest with yourself, be brutally honest with your situation and yourself, let go of your ego, release the ego, be willing to ask for help and be willing to accept the help that you're given and then, you know, find a Zoom meeting where it's a bunch of other people that are that are in the same boat that you are. Um, listen and look for the similarities in their stories and not the differences, because, you know, once you start going, oh, well, I was never that bad. You know, that's ego. Right. I mean, you know, uh, it doesn't matter in the end. It doesn't matter how bad it was for you listen to the things in those stories that you can relate to and the things that you don't relate to instead of using them as a reason to stay in the disease um just you know disregard them and count days count days it's in, you know like for me I'm I'm the kind of guy who I need to see physical evidence of of my achievements you know like in my early sobriety, I literally bought a calendar and it, and it was like at the end of the day before I went to bed, when I marked off that X, you know, I could stand back and go, there it is. That's my achievement. And then all of a sudden I'm looking at 30 X's and then all of a sudden I'm turning the page and I'm looking at pages and pages of, of X's. And those are all achievements, something I, something measurable, something um, substantive that I could point to, to say, 
I am, I am making a difference in my life. I am achieving something. So I think that's some profound advice, Eddie. So thank you so much for sharing that. And Eddie, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate you spending the time to share all the advice that you had, your powerful story, and also your powerful recovery journey. So thank you once again, Eddie. Um, Ruth, thank you so much, man. I, I'm really glad that uh, that I got to meet you, and I, I really, you know, uh, hats off to you for what you're trying to do. And uh, I'm here anytime uh, if I can help in any way. Um, please let me know because, um, you know, helping someone else helps me to stay um, clean and sober. Absolutely. And when I'm next out in LA, I'll, I'll drop you a Twitter DM, Eddie. So thank you so much, Eddie. Absolutely, Maruf. Take care, man. So that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it and thank you for tuning in. You can find out more about Quit Genius on quitgenius.com and the podcast on missionrecoverypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed our content, I'd really appreciate if you could subscribe and consider leaving us a review. Thank you.